Hi listeners. It was International Women's Day this month, so Matt and I left the podcast in the hands of some of our colleagues to discuss Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. As always, it's full of spoilers, so if you're looking to read the book, then do so before listening to the show. If you want to discuss the book and what you think about it, or just say hi, then, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter at social underscore sci-fi, or email us at socialsciencetalks at gmail.com. Enjoy the program. Hi, I'm Lydia. Hi, I'm Charlotte. Hi, I'm Jess. Hi, I'm Sorana. And we're here today to talk about a very interesting book from an author that you've never probably heard of. The book's called Woman on the Edge of Time, and it's by an author named Marge Piercy. Um, the quote on the front cover says, she is one of the most important novelists of our time. Um, so, Which we're all a bit surprised about, weren't we? Because none of us have ever heard of her, but we're all quite big readers, particularly of, of feminist histories and literatures and stuff. So... I'm so disappointed, actually, that I haven't read this book before. This seems like sort of the ideal book that you'd want to read in high school and then maybe reread at university, even. Yeah. Just because it has so much mm -hmm. impact. This is sort of book that I I would have wanted about 14 and then to reread every decade of my life. And I feel a bit like, I feel a bit almost left out that this book wasn't made aware to me as a teenager. Um, the British education establishment has clearly just ignored this book. And the same goes for the US. I mean, I would have loved this book, you know, when I was 14, 16, reading everything I could on gender, theory about gender, and even sort of non-binary gender identities, because this just does the gender so mm -hmm. beautifully, but at the same time, it's not the key focus of the book. There's so much else in it. Yeah. So the book does actually appear in um, some of the kind of, if you type in what feminist science fiction mm -hmm. novels, mm -hmm. can I read it? It appears kind of like often at the top three of the top ten books mm -hmm. of this genre that you can read. Um, but I think that Often we, I mean, I hadn't heard of half the books on that list anyway, mm -hmm. so I think that's also interesting. I don't think many people are going to be googling feminist science fiction. <laughs> I want them to, yes, yeah. now, but I doubt they want. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, I googled the book, and there are quite a lot of references in different articles, different um, other books, or commentaries on book about this particular. Uh, book that we are discussing so clearly people are reading and it's clearly in the top five yeah, but it yeah. wasn't anywhere near the standard of mm. many of the the male authors which have already been discussed on this podcast when i've googled them mm. i found tons of, of forums discussing mm. every single bit of the book and i've heard from most of the the authors even if i've not actually read the book and this has managed to pass not only us by but it's passed most of the people in Aberystwyth by that i've mentioned that we're doing this mm. podcast too and I think that comes back to what do we define as the genre of science fiction? What is science fiction? Is this science fiction? And as you're saying, Lydia, what is or feminist science fiction? Yeah. How do we define those categories? Are they sort of mutually exclusive? Or is there perhaps more overlap or ambiguity than most, say, sci-fi aficionados would acknowledge? Hmm. I think as a as a kind of 
genre of books, I would always avoid science fiction novels. So I was um, really surprised to enjoy and like this book. Um, and I'm not sure why I, I would avoid science fiction. I mean, I've read sort of Margaret Atwood and some of this, but I feel quite alienated from some mm. of the discussions that surround science fiction. Yeah. And it's it's not always the type of fiction that I would choose to read. Maybe that's just because it's so male-dominated. Mm. I mean, most of the science fiction I read has been written by men about men. You have to search for those gems. I mean, yeah. Ursula Le Guin, Elizabeth mm. Moon, they exist. They do exist. But they They're not don't mainstream, get, are they? Yeah, they aren't yeah. as mainstream. Mm. They don't have the, should I say, advertising mm. or public knowledge or just accessibility. Mm-hmm. And it's a real shame, actually. I thought it was on the same topic. It's interesting that this book has never been adapted because so much science fiction is great for the big screen. I've seen loads of films mm-hmm. and they, they're, they're great. This book would be, I could see this book making quite a good film, but it's, I've never heard of an adaption. I didn't find one on Google when I Googled it. Um, and that might have something to play with why we've not heard of it and why it's not, like, what is science fiction if it's not adaptable for big screen. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see it as a play as well. Yes. I think that it actually could in some ways be well suited to the stage, um, except for perhaps the shifts between mm. the various worlds that ex- exist in it. I'd be quite interesting if you had quite a small cast, because many of the characters in the in the utopian future, you can almost see the parallels with the people in the, the present day. So Jack Rabbit is the friend from the hospital, and the prostitute is a bit like Dolly. So you could have a play with the same cast playing multiple parts, and then Connie really being the only person, perhaps, who was, who was played by the same character all the way through. I wonder if that would make us question more, like, whether it's real or not, too, mm-hmm. by having those same visual images um, in both worlds, both times. Mm, yeah. I think perhaps that would be... It would be easier then to have it as a play because you could still leave that ambiguous. Whereas I often find when you depict things on the sort of big screen or for TV or something, then it's more difficult to leave uh, scenes of violence, like dream sequences, mm-hmm. like that has to be interpreted in a way um, that might actually take away from the book yeah I think it's a sort of thing that it's a book you'd have to read before you watched the adaptation otherwise mm. you'd go into the book with whatever the adapter believed I suppose it would be interesting to see the same play by several different directors to see how each director took on the play but then it'd be a long play wouldn't it so you'd be quite bored of it by the end <laughs> yeah so maybe moving on to that question though of is it real or not um, what do you think I mean, my view is that it doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. Um, and partly because I've read the book twice now, um, I chose to approach it that way. Um, I think I would probably err on the side of it's not real in the sense that I don't think she's being transported into this world in a very sort of physical time travel sense, but I think you gain a lot by going along with the idea that it's real in a sense to her. Mm -hmm. Just because it's happening in her head doesn't mean Mm -hmm. it's not real sort of thing. 
I had a similar mm. feeling as you did, Lydia. When I read the book, I've only read it once, but I read it the first half or so, I was thinking, is this real? Is this not real? And I almost thought we'd get told. Mm. But after about the halfway point, I just no longer was that interested in whether it was real or not because that wasn't the point of the book anymore. Other things mm. had taken over. No, I shared Charlotte's uh, feeling. I, it didn't really matter for me at some point if this was real or was not real. Because I think quite early on uh, when I was reading the book, I already decided for myself that it's real for Connie and in big parts of the utopia and the community that is discussed in the book is just part of her imagination. Um, so that was my general feeling. For me, it wasn't. It doesn't really matter if it's real or unreal. It's real for Connie, and that's the most important thing for me. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me that it's a little bit like a thought experiment in philosophy, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually interesting because it's quite a accepted and dominant way of the way we kind of think through problems. Um, so even the question of is it real? I mean, you would never ask that of a thought experiment. Mm. The question would be, is it useful to tackle this particular problem? Um, but I don't really know where that takes us in terms of the book. Mm. Yeah, I think for me that it, uh, it's in line with that similar um, type of thinking of I don't care whether it's real or not. I just didn't want the author to tell me that it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's all that mattered mm -hmm. to me just yeah. Yeah. let me have mm -hmm. my hopes and dreams that it could be real even if it's just real to her just don't yeah. tell me otherwise I think had we got to the end and the author had said in the right narrative oh it wasn't real mm -hmm. I'd have felt really betrayed mm -hmm. but in many ways I think I would have felt quite betrayed if I'd been told it definitely was real as well I wanted it to be in my head as much as it was in Connie's head mm. I think this is because I think the narrative is quite good in the book and yeah. being told at the end of the book oh this is not real yeah. you would feel cheated I feel cheated yeah. you would feel cheated she's a great author mm. she really makes it I think one thing that I really liked was of course when Connie goes to the the future in, in, com in inverted commas wherever you want to believe it was you have to do the whole bit where everything has to be explained to her and I've read books where the hero or whatever has gone to a new place and everything is explained to the hero in really boring ways, asking, you know, how does this work? But the author manages to make it really readable and mm. relatable. Um, she asks, Connie asks these questions in a way that somebody would ask these questions. It's not just a knowledge dump. Mm. And that's what I quite liked mm. when I was reading it, just, just from a purely literacy point of view. That's what I really liked about it. It draws you in. It, it's hard to put down once you get into it. At, at first, it feels like it might be moving a bit slowly, but once you really start seeing the worlds, both of them, through her eyes, mm -hmm. I didn't want to put the book down. No. I, every mm -hmm. morning when I woke up, it was the first thing I thought about. And it's been several weeks now since I finished the book, and I'm still thinking about the book. And that doesn't happen with many books. Mm -hmm. And following on what Charlotte you said earlier, I think it was really interesting when the author was describing um, the community and in the future, um, because it touched upon a lot of things, um, relationships, uh, love, friendship, death. Um, so it's really quite a rich description mm -hmm. of the future or mm -hmm. how it might look like. Yeah, I mean, the pages 
that, of, that are devoted to the future can't be much more than about 100, right? Because the book's only 300 or something. Mm. But somehow the author manages to condense this entire new world mm. into quite a s- small number of pages and still make it really rich. Mm. I think it's a really accessible book, not just for PhD academics like us, but actually mm. for, for anybody. I think it's... I think you can access this book mm, yeah. it's really well written I think it's partly so accessible because you see this world through the encounter between uh, Connie and Luciente and that connection kind of grows stronger so because it's depicted like a friendship and them learning about each other's worlds the world is not this huge place it's actually kind of you're introduced to Luciente's world which yeah. is quite interesting it's like the interpersonal connections mm. shape the narrative structure and that's the part that you relate to first and foremost mm. and it's what carries you throughout the book really mm-hmm. maybe we should talk about the narrative structure and how it's mm. set up mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um, because I thought there were some interesting comments on how it was structured and so it starts you have a sort of one chapter set in the present and then one chapter in Connie's future and then as the book goes on this becomes less clear cut you don't have one chapter here and one chapter there you get the characters coming there's one point where Luciente goes back into into Connie's time um, and then as the book goes on you maybe have half a chapter set in one place and half a chapter mm-hmm. in the other so that by the end of the book it's almost in the same paragraph you have the characters from both worlds interacting and actually there's one paragraph where when um, Jack Rabbit has died where they don't even interact knowingly it's just the pain almost crosses the worlds and it, it slowly builds up and builds up so that by the end of the book this is quite natural and I think had the author reverted to the chapter on chapter off structure it would have felt wrong mm. I think it's also interesting that, well, Luciente is always uncomfortable in mm-hmm. Connie's world, mm-hmm. um, and you kind of get that through the fact that she's kind of looking around and is very confused by how busy it is. But also, then Connie is not immediately comfortable in mm-hmm. that world mm-hmm. either, and I think that's quite nicely done through the structure as mm-hmm. well, because mm-hmm. as she gets more comfortable, it kind of also. Um, has this kind of flipping sense where yeah, um, yeah I don't know the saying. world sort of expands as she gets more mm. comfortable so they go to this neighbouring village don't mm. they and then they go to the, the hospital isn't it mm-hmm. and they have the the big party with another villagers come and it, it seems to grow and grow as, the, as she becomes more and more comfortable but I thought it was interesting that the author didn't sort of work more on Luciente's uncomfortableness in Connie's time it was almost as if Luciente should expect that, whilst Connie shouldn't necessarily expect that in the future. I don't know, it was almost... I don't know how to describe it, but Luciente being in the past and not feeling comfortable, but this isn't... Luciente's not interested as much as learning about Connie's past as Connie is about learning about Luciente's future, which perhaps goes on, as I think we'll discuss later, about my my feelings on the, the study of history here. Um, might have got a bit off tangent there. <laughs> but do you think it's because all they know in the future is about the bad things that happened in the past? Yeah. So that's clearly that's why Luciente is not comfortable in Connie's time. I, I agree, but I think that 
it seemed a lack of interest from Luciento's mm. point. I don't mm. think that many people can genuinely believe that everything that happened in the past was bad. But mm. I think also Connie is not comfortable in her present, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, she's not. I mean, yeah, it seems environmental, like yeah. not just nature environmental, but human environmental. It's too loud. It's too busy. Mm. It's the air is hard to breathe. So would you say then, if let's say Connie wasn't there? The, she was the receiver, wasn't she? The catcher, yeah. Was she the catcher, yeah. yeah. If, let's say it wasn't Connie, let's say it was somebody who lived in, I don't know, Washington State or something, somewhere nice out in the country, lots of trees. Would would Luciente have been much more comfortable? Well, maybe there is that difference between rural mm-hmm. city divide because, I yeah. mean, it could be Seattle versus, say, somewhere more rural if it were in Washington yeah. or upstate New York which yeah. is very beautiful very nice, compared yeah. to Manhattan in terms of if you value rural yeah. over city life I mean she, I think, sorry. sorry I was just going to say that the kind of books also kind of rests on this notion of needing to escape mm-hmm. so I mean maybe we could imagine a book where someone in a suburban life wanted to escape but then that book might be very different and what they wanted to escape to would also be quite different um but I guess that also then partly brings us to kind of some of the more kind of structural oppression mm-hmm. bits of the book and like specifically to the question of gender. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can imagine a book maybe set in a kind of white white suburban household where gender played a factor and need to escape. But I think I think it works so well because there are so many multiple oppressions that she's she's living under yeah i mean that's definitely right i mean the the contrast of the two characters and the contrast of the Mm. characters from connie's time and then from luciente's time it had to be built as such in order to show uh, the complexity um, of connie's situation i think i think in that sense it's actually an intentional critique Mm. of the uh, intersecting power dynamics that exist in connie's time many of which exist very clearly in our day Mm. that you have to or you don't have to but I think setting up that scenario really makes it so you can analyze and pick apart and show that it doesn't have to be like this Mm. that Mm. we as people not just men or women Mm. or any sort of identity but we as simply people can be more Mm. and I find there's something interesting about reading science fiction that's written some time ago. I mean, this is almost kind of, what, 40, 50 Mm. years ago now. And so we're almost coming up to the future that Mm. is imagined in the book. And it still looks very much like the 79 version that rather than the kind of, I don't know, 2040, 2050 that it's supposed to be set in. I think it's the the Kenner, Mm. the the watch, which is the iWatch now. Mm. Um, There were some things in the future which exist today but yeah they i if i had to be transported into one of them i probably would i would know a lot more about the 1970s version than i would about the the future version because it's not that different 
to today. I think it was so interesting that they had the knowledge accessible at any day and any time. This mm -hmm. is what we do, right? Yeah. We we easily Google something yeah. or like which we did with this book. Take yeah. out our uh, smartphone. Yeah. But I thought the phrase that they used at the beginning was so interesting. It was like nonsense in, nonsense out, <laughs> um, which I just thought was brilliant yeah. because it sort of describes so well, kind <laughs> of like referring to kind of yeah. Wikipedia, really. like <laughs> even asking a question and then just getting this sort of slightly odd response that mm. you still don't have mm. much context for. So. Mm. There was one bit I particularly liked with the with the Kenna, where she said, Luciente said that some people feel sort of naked without it, and then mm. some people don't mind not being without it at all. And I said, like, that is Facebook to a T. <laughs> and know? there was the one story of the person that was so attached to it that when they lost the arm in their Kenner they were able to get the arm back, but the Kenner was lost, and then they, I believe, later killed themselves yeah. because yeah. they had lost their Kenner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you suppose if you lose, lost your social media identity, mm -hmm. I don't know how necessarily that would have happened, but let's say you were forced to delete all of your Facebook and Twitter and social media mm -hmm. accounts. So some people do live very much mm. through social media. Yes. I mean, and I think there is this, mm -hmm. is there not... I don't know much about it, I will admit, but is there not something similar happening in Japan where many people, many young teenagers spend most of their lives in front of computers? Mm. So if you were to physically mm. take away their social media presence, you are taking away much of their lives. I was just going to say that this was sort of actually then an interesting continuity in the book, kind of the relationship between people and their technology. Um, so, I mean, we've kind of been talking about it as like they were sort of two distinct kind of worlds, but actually there's a lot of sameness about the way that the people relate to technology and kind of the way it's been adopted and kind of changed. So like the Kenner, obviously, but then there's the, I mean, actually, obviously it has quite harmful effects in the book, but the kind of thing that's implanted in Connie's brain or like... Um, I mean, even drugs maybe we can see as a form of technology. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was quite mm -hmm. perhaps an interesting continuity yeah. between the worlds. It seems like the difference, though, between those worlds is choice. Mm -hmm. And that Connie doesn't have control of what she's injected with or what mm -hmm. pills she's forced to take. Unless she can hide them under her tongue and spit them out later, mm -hmm. she has to take that medicine no matter how it makes her feel. And she doesn't have a choice when it comes to informed consent for the operation that's performed on her and the mm. electrodes that are stuck in her head. Mm. The choice is quite relative though, isn't it? Mm. Because you were saying, Lydia, earlier about how patients who are having who have Parkinson's often now have an implant in their head. It's a new technology. Is it a new technology? Um, I, I think it's only in the trial phases as well, oh. which is why I kind of mentioned it in relation to this the, medical trial. But I find um, that quite interesting, though, because let's just say that this, this does work. You have the choice, if you have Parkinson's, to have this implant or not. But do you really have a choice? Because Parkinson's is so awful to live with. That's not I mean, a choice, is it? But it is a choice. It turns off the tremor. Like, yeah. Yeah. It is a choice in that they're not being forced to do it. But it's quite relative. It's it's a, it's a bit like if you have if you have a a disease or you have an illness or whatever, you can choose not to take mm. the medicine, but you will often pay with your life. How much of a choice is that? 
It may not be a great choice, but it's still the freedom of making that choice. It's the idea that an individual can still decide what is right for them. I think or their families. It is. A, it is. A, that's a thing with the families, though. I mean, if you have a family who you are having to support, and if you die, you choose not to take this medicine, and you die, and you leave this family without without a breadwinner or something. How much? Of, it is a choice. I, I agree. It is a choice, but it's not much of a choice. I mean, in the sort of future world, also you also have this choice to die mm. and I thought that was really interesting because it didn't it never really went into detail about how that actually happened it almost just seemed that it was quite natural and all of a sudden they were like well today is my day and they have their family around them and then they just die um, and I wasn't quite sure how that worked it's I as mean, if they willed themselves yeah, to die to, mm. and it, I can't help but find parallels here with say assisted suicide mm-hmm. for example yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, definitely in, in, in Lucienta's time in the future, I think white choice is quite relative. I was thinking about going to her towards the end uh, of the book, like when there's the war and there's a parallel with Connie's war. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the the the, fu- the people living in the future and Lucienta's people are quite compelled to go to war. Yeah, he doesn't I mean, want to go to war, does yeah. he, Jack Rabbit? So... Yeah, I mean, definitely, yeah. I think yeah. choice is even relative, even in the future, yeah. right? A bit, it would be impossible, I would think, to eliminate choice or totally uneliminate mm. choice mm. in life. If as long if you're if you are if you have free will, you must have choice. Though there is a difference between, say, volunteering to defend as mm. Jack Rabbit does, mm. and say being part of a draft but isn't mm. isn't he doesn't he have to volunteer though no i don't think anyone has to volunteer i think in the book they they say nobody has to do anything that mm. they don't want, want to. to but there is this kind of i mean this is where the community comes in mm. so you don't have to do anything mm. but there's also other factors at play there how you're perceived by the society mm, yeah. whether you kind of want to be one of these people who are drifting in between communities yeah. and so the kind of community does have an impact in how you make decisions, but ultimately there's no kind of force. Did you, did you have the same feeling when you were reading about the, the, the community and Luciente's people that it was more about do no harm and you won't mm. be harmed, so it's the same as my freedom went where your freedom starts, right? So I think mm. it was more about, it was, obviously it was they thought about themselves, but I think primordially and Firstly, they thought about the community whenever they mm-hmm. took a decision. So they talk about the idea of all being part of the collective uh, entity. There seems mm-hmm. to be a certain social responsibility mm-hmm. that plays into this. Mm-hmm. That that's not only it's not their only motivating factor, mm-hmm. but it seems to be their social currency. Mm-hmm. What you give back, what you contribute, mm-hmm. that's where your yeah. value lies. Yeah. I think community is often at the center of kind of feminist alternatives to the way we live. I mean, there's been so many critiques of individuality and like I think it's quite clear in the book that individuality and kind of this individual notion of freedom is quite detrimental to women, particularly in bringing up children and these sorts of things. So I think the notion of community is so strong here because it chimes so well with this kind of 
And the community part of it isn't just about like mm-hmm. the giving back or that social meshing, but also how they deal with conflict because mm-hmm. this isn't a society free of conflict, obviously, mm-hmm. but and how they mediate concerns as well and how they choose to sit around very much as in a way we are talking mm-hmm. about issues and discussing them and mm-hmm. working through differences and opinion and yeah, I really like that bit in the book. It was it was really good. It was interesting. They had a similar thing going on with adult the change from childhood into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So the mothers, the parents, were no longer allowed to talk to their children for was it twelve weeks or yeah. something. There was a, yeah. a gap where they were not allowed to talk because it would foster independence and stuff. And it was like a sort of community idea that this would all happen. And I, I just found it really interesting. Mm. And that was also kind of about seeing them as an equal, so mm-hmm. kind yeah. of breaking down former ties of dependence. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of then understanding people as also equally human and equally able to make a decision. Yeah. Um, and I also really liked the description of the um, community parliament or the government mm. when um, they would argue it out for hours and then at the end the person who won the argument then would have to kind of host yes the other people and kind of Mm -hmm. give them gifts and food and kind of as a way of kind of yeah kind of moving forward I guess peaceful to put their issues behind them Mm. and move on yeah Yeah. well we then have a fight about it yeah 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 um, in terms of community setup too, it seems like, and this is something that we seem to have all had an issue with. There are various issues with either like the way in which these communities um, adopted cultures, or the ways in which they remembered, or even sort of mm-hmm. communicated that memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that for me personally, it stood out that almost in the beginning as if at random they're picking a culture um, for each of these small communities and then it it does feel like cultural appropriation here where they take that culture on and start using it as a basis for this society that they're creating yeah I thought exactly the same I'm when I was reading it I just felt it was really disturbing to me how little this people in this village knew about Connie's time, which in the book is about a hundred and thirty or twenty years beforehand. It's not that long ago. It's not quite within living memory, but it's not that far outside of living memory. And it was almost as if they had rejected a past and they had taken on a new culture. Um, as a his student of history, I just found it really on utopian, dystopian. It, this idea that all the literature has been destroyed presumably because if you'd read the literature that's around today you would know about the past they've only remembered the wars they've only remembered the bad things the pollution the pollution um they know all about this sort of thing which is why i thought it i didn't particularly care for luciente not spending much time in connie's world because luciente doesn't know much about connie's world she just knows the bad bits about connie's world there are good things about connie's world there are good and bad things about luciente's world and i just found it very disturbing how luciente's world or at least luciente's village has just disregarded the past and all of its literature as as being not really that important anymore do you think sorry do you think this was an intentional 
thing coming from the author. Um, I, I would say so. Mm. Um, because I think it's said in the book that culture, they've decided that culture is important and they want to retain that. But the problem is they want to disassociate it from ideas of race and inequality. Um, so they kind of specifically say that um, the kind of the way they make children in the kind of test tubes or whatever the actually, breeder, the breeder yeah. um, they mix the genes mm-hmm. um, but they wanted to keep this idea of culture because obviously it's the basis for community mm. um, and I think perhaps that's a problematic assumption and it's difficult to think through because in our society culture is so tied to racial identity, gender identity gender relations um, so I mean maybe it's also a limitation of the book but mm. then I, I'm I'm not sure if I were to try and write a utopian future and I wanted to create the same thing how I would go about it mm. differently I think there's the sheer mm. physicality of the book it's not that long it's long enough mm. I think of course if you were to have Lucy Entain knowing a lot about history it would change the physics of the book but you would probably have to have quite a longer book which wouldn't necessarily improve the book. But going back to the plot, I mean, we talked earlier about a canon, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Luciente's people and Luciente could access the past whenever they wanted, right? It was just a touch away of asking the canon for the meaning of a certain world. I suppose mm. perhaps what they're getting at then is that it's all been destroyed. Mm. If they were to destroy absolutely everything all the books that have ever been written, then it would be quite easy to get rid of history because it would no longer exist. Mm. Well, because history doesn't exist, right? It's it's a construction of our thoughts on the past. History doesn't exist in a, a yeah. physicality. Yeah, it brings up an interesting question. And one of the things I thought about when reading this was, well, what are the what's the future going to think of our time? Mm-hmm. I thought that, yeah. Where are the gaps? What's going to be missing? Yeah and their constructions of our history and Mm -hmm. what schools of thought are going to exist on, say, the Mm -hmm. first half of the 21st century, even. Yeah, I found Mm -hmm. that really interesting. I mean, when I read history books written not that many years ago, I read them and I think, gosh, this is quite racist, for example, Mm -hmm. or very gendered, very masculine. Mm -hmm. Um, These books are written by people, some of them might well still be alive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I... I am I'm envious of the future almost to be able to see how our past is. Maybe if I live till I'm 90, I might be able to be a bit more objective. Maybe I'll write the history of our time. Maybe I will, yeah. <laughs> I guess it also kind of brings us to the question of like what's archived, right? Because mm-hmm. I think we can see some of the dangers of the way we think. So if we were to look at the parliamentary archive, for example, about, I don't know, the refugee crisis, mm. I mean already people are saying well this is racist or this is kind of um it's not that we can't see it but how how are those things documented and how are they documented differently i mean maybe with facebook you have some of this kind of i mean yeah but these ways of speaking to these problems are quite informal i think there's two important points there I think one of them is that we shouldn't just say something like everyone in the 1970s was a feminist or anything because as we can see some people today are perhaps being quite racist towards Mm. refugees or how I would perceive racism to be while some people are very 
opposite that are very welcoming. So I think it's difficult to say one tie is always racist or something. I think the other issue is Facebook. Facebook is great in many ways, but it's not archived. Mm. It doesn't exist in an archive. Um, and unless someone starts archiving it, it will probably be lost when Facebook eventually dies. Or it will be kept on a server in San Francisco I mean, or something. I don't think that our information and all our profile settings are archived somewhere, like on a server. Like, I mean, the whole conversation, like, what happens with your Facebook account when you die? And also, can you actually really delete? But even if you have it all, even if it all exists, mm. one of the main problems of archive work is often there isn't enough stuff because it's mm. been burnt or whatever, it doesn't exist. With Facebook, there's almost too much stuff. There are millions. I mean, I think mm. the UK is one of the highest people. Use. There are millions and millions of people just in the UK. How would I, as a 22nd century historian, possibly decide who on earth to listen to? It's just unbelievably big, assuming that everything in Facebook has somehow survived. There's just this deluge of data, actually. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, under the EU regulations, you can actually request a copy of all of your Facebook data, you know, everything you've ever uploaded or done on the oh site gosh. that they have. <laughs> and you get this in this big file, and I'm just waiting for the day that, it, maybe it's already happened, that people have decided for important people to submit that actually to archives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's important, though? I mean, one of the most important things about history is not just learning about what David Cameron has to say, it's learning what the people are having to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I important? Or am I or, you know, is Serana important? Or, you know, who decides who's important? And then who deciding who's important is in itself a problematic issue. Coming back to the book. Slightly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, actually, it links quite well. Because, yeah. I mean, clearly Connie is not someone who would be viewed important. Mm. Not at all. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting then that Luciente, if Luciente exists would choose to then go back mm. to Connie. And mm-hmm. I think Connie even says, well, why me? Why not someone yeah. like a politician? Yeah. And it's like, well, no, we can't talk to a politician because that's sort of... Firstly, it's not what they're actually interested mm. in. Yeah. Um, but also then maybe they wouldn't be receptive to it in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think they even mentioned that like, mm. they couldn't access... The historical um, points yeah. of historical significance mm. or something. And Lucinta also talks about trying to reach and having been mm. trying to reach someone, mm. and uh, Connie being like the first to actually connect mm-hmm. for her, mm. which I think is sort of particularly interesting because we get this narrator who is absolutely fascinating, and part of the way in which she stands out is because of these power dynamics. Mm. It's the being able to see something from a perspective that is different from Mm. the presumed norm, the presumed, say, white, male, heterosexual, um, cisgender norm. Mm. I think the narrator in this book actually is quite interesting because it's not Connie, Mm. um, but it's always by Connie. And this kind of made me also think of her kind of the construction of her madness um because i think normally in a book where you would have a separate kind of protagonist and narrator then the narrator would kind of be almost allowed to go elsewhere Mm -hmm. but Mm. it never does so Mm. it was almost like a converse sorry conversation between 
Connie and the narrator, which I mean then is kind of ambiguous as to whether again it's mm-hmm. she's almost talking to herself or are they mm. separate? Are they one and the same? Yeah. I, I had trouble really differentiating between protagonist and narrator. Yeah. Mm. It just blended all together. At times I just thought it was the same person and then it came to me that it wasn't yeah, it just there wasn't a clear cut division like there is in most books. Yeah, I can mm. share the feeling. I yeah. I particularly felt that I was following yeah. um Connie's narration yeah. m- most of the time. I mean going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that adds to why she's a really great author. Mm. I would quite like to read all the stuff she's written to see if it's as good as this. So in terms of other things we wanted to talk about, we had uh, language, language, pronouns, um, continuum from gender, and we had the topic of organ donation, and then also um, more about the medical establishment, if one of those things are interesting. Yes. Um, (laughs) I mean, I wanted to talk about the medical establishment, but I also know that everyone wanted to talk about language, so maybe we should start with language. Okay. Well, it can always be changed in editing, so... (laughs) Language. Language. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I really liked the use of pronouns in the book. I mean, Jess, you said, like, um, the use of per and person was quite interesting, and I don't know if there's a longer history to that in kind of novels that was the first time i'd ever seen mm. hers like i guess it's yeah. pronounced hers like hers um for a possessive pronoun mm. and then person as in she or he or mm. they and I, that was something that i thought was so creative because i hadn't yeah. heard hers like used before and compared to like there they um uh, i actually like that um but it just seemed to be a rather inventive to for a novel coming out of the 70s in particular it mm. surprised me do you think this is something that um um universities can learn from and then how uh, the written media is actually produced and because there are a lot of conversation also at universities about um discrimination um and also in how we write uh, newspaper articles Maybe this is one of the books that everybody should read. <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, actually journalism uh, has done a lot for standards in terms of talking about people, particularly mm-hmm. trans individuals, in terms of the guidelines that have come out um, in the U.S. Say the notices from AP on how to refer to Chelsea Manning, for example, mm-hmm. in terms of proper pronoun usage, preferred mm-hmm. pronouns. Um, and it, it's interesting that parallel to university life mm-hmm. as well because we can all go onto our student records and we can um, identify within certain categories or we can I think set up saying that you prefer a certain set of pronouns mm-hmm. so that can let your lecturers know but it, it's not entirely an effective system yeah. yet, it's not there mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it's, it's on its way but yeah. I remember a few years ago quite enjoyed, um, I think there must have been a mess up on the system because I became Mr. Botfield for quite a while um, I just, it's not really very useful for this conversation but I find it almost entertaining that I was suddenly Mr. Botfield and uh, it didn't seem to click with anyone for about a year actually I would get letters addressed as if I was a man yeah. <laughs> I think just coming back to the idea of using person rather than their or mm. like them um, I think that's really interesting because if you use the term person it's kind of seems more encompassing of an idea of humanity mm-hmm. um, and a collective rather than mm. 
like using there still is a way of identifying that it's someone else so I think it kind of fits quite nicely with the imagined community that they're trying to create in the book um, but I also think it fits quite well in with the idea of institutionalization and what institutionalization does to people um, so and I, I I mean this is kind of my little pet project but um I'm quite interested in the way that institutionalization tends to dehumanize people and to distance people from each other. And so maybe that's an also also an interesting kind of thing going in, on in the book. And then the use of language kind of almost reinforces this separation um, kind of... You say then that, I mean, so Connie goes through issues where she has to wear the same dress every day, which is, becomes more and more deteriorated. Um, she's not allowed any lipstick, um, she can't dye her mm. hair. So would you say then that the fact that, let's say this is part of Luciente's, I mean this is part of Connie's almost imagination, the idea that feminism has been taken away from her, so now she's just a person? Is it feminism or is it femininity? Mm. Fem- Fem- yeah. Fem- Maybe the, the idea that she's a woman has been taken away from her then. Mm almost an institutional de-gendering of an individual against their will yeah she's she's a person now she's not a woman she's not feminine she's not anything she's just a person in which case perhaps it's at least subconsciously it's against what connie wants and at the same time it stands in contrast to the future where gender is played with gender just is and it's not a it's not this taboo or this role you have to fit into yeah people are simply persons yeah and and her hair is mentioned quite a lot in the future so she's called salt and pepper by quite a few people by jack rabbit quite a few times um it doesn't make any difference to her femininity or to her gender anymore and i think it goes back to sort of my own mental image of utopia and the idea that if I could live in an ideal world, it would be either the purse person divide or uh, there, they, you know, that sort of way of referring to people, not in a way to forcibly degender, but rather than acknowledge, instead acknowledging that people are people and I'm not going to force a concept of gender on you. It's interesting looking at another part of the book where. Connie first comes across the breeder, mm. which to me immediately rang bells of Brave New World. Mm. And her immediate reaction to it is that society, or as men, I suppose, have taken away women's power, the one power they did mm. have, which of course is to have babies and bring them up. I don't know if you would think that that had some relation to it. I think it's mm. more about the idea of motherhood, mm-hmm. um, the example that you had just, right? I mean, it is considered that motherhood, well, theoretically, is the privilege of women. women it's like the very, women one of the few identifies. privileges that women have. But like in the future, it's not. So it's I think yeah. this brings a lot of um, brings into conversation a lot of ideas about mm-hmm. if transgender um, individuals mm-hmm. um, and how we relate to transgender individuals who choose mm-hmm. to become uh, to have a baby, yeah. right? And I mean. That was probably one of the most interesting that we can agree in in the book was that uh, Connie was so upset um, mm-hmm. that 
she as a mother is taken away the privilege of yeah. raising her daughter but then a man has the privilege to or someone who Konya signs as a man yeah. um, to, to breastfeed I mean it's quite an important tension in the book right mm. I mean it's important to her for so many reasons mm. I mean, partly because she has her daughter taken away from her and because this is kind of almost the one point in her life where she identifies herself as being happy in a particular way but there's also the idea of her mother having the hist- the forced hysterectomy um, and not being able to have any more children. So there's a kind of question of agency again here. But in the imagined future, then, like, what actually... I think what Luciente says is something like, this is the one thing that stopped us being equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting like, I really this, like that bit. this yeah. idea of yeah. well whilst women are still tied mm. to this biological thing and then how how do we have equality because then there's still this kind of yeah. division of labor or kind of a double work is, day and all these notions it's interesting because Connie sees this as, as a power whereas mm. Luciente mm. sees it as a non-power whatever the opposite of power is it's a responsibility it's a a drawback right I mean it's really interesting because it's like we in our time or most of our people and people that we know like they perceive this as a privilege whereas we don't we've maybe this is not a real privilege but I think it's interesting because it's not that she views mothering as a drawback because she chooses to mother Mm. Luciente chooses to mother But the the concept of mothering has changed, mm. mm-hmm. and there are three mothers. But that doesn't then stop you from achieving other things because the labour is shared. shared mm-hmm. Yeah, I was interested, particularly with the I was as I was reading about them, the parents thing. I, I couldn't help but think of Brave New World, as I said, because the breeder mm. just seems so to me. In Brave New World, you regularly see the women. With their, I mean, they called them bouts of contraceptives. Mm. It's never made clear here how these women mm. don't have babies. There is one woman in the book that does have a baby. Um, she had a baby several decades ago, um, and I, I did wonder whether everyone was just, I don't know, neutered, or <laughs> is that the right word to use? Mm. I don't know. Or whether the responsibility mm. of the contraception was still on the woman, or whether it was on everyone, because. I mean, even mm. today, okay, so motherhood, mm. we see it as a privilege, but much of the time, contraception is on the woman. Okay, mm. so men sometimes mm. do use condoms, but, and I know that they are, scientists are mm. making a male contraceptive pill, but even today on women, it's usually the contraceptive is on the woman. Well, I would actually disagree. I don't see mothering as a privilege necessarily. Um, and I think that maybe it's sort of being phrased in the wrong terms mm. here, because I think it's fertility as um, an area where it can be a disadvantage for women Mm -hmm. and I think that goes back into the whole discussion over birth control I mean perennially they come up with the oh they're developing a male contraceptive pill um, and it always gets side table delayed something it's been going for years now Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it but I think this is also interesting in terms of what kinds of pain or illnesses are actually researched I mean 
kind of contra- contraception and kind of menstrual pain and all these things are notoriously under-researched mm. and there doesn't really there's no imperative kind of market-wise wise to develop a male contraception it just isn't prioritized in some ways yeah whereas if it were available it might be extremely popular mm. and the same thing with better treatments say for menstrual cramps mm. yeah or better hormonal contraception for women for example we have this issue with a lot of these things is that women often turn on each other mm. it's often not just a patriarchy thing women will often turn on each other where i mean if you if you have a woman one woman who's gone off ill because of menstrual cramps i've heard other women say oh I, i'm stronger than her i've never needed to take days off and i've heard that quite a few times in different contexts with different people but in essence that is reproducing patriarchal mm. notions. it is, it is yeah. yes I, i i used the wrong word there mm. But it is reproducing that idea that uh, it's a weakness. It's a weakness, yeah. It's not the just a medical sex. condition, yeah. And that other different women would have different reactions and have different pain thresholds and have just different pain in general. And depending on who you are, your pain often gets ignored. Mm. And that's something that comes up repeatedly yeah. in the book, in fact, is that we have this medical establishment and... Uh, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, uh, even maybe even the religion or what hospital you go to, um, the, your ability to pay, yeah. uh, your gender, those things affect what treatment you get and whether you're even prioritized or your pain is prioritized. I think even your age as well, because, I mean, obviously there's kind of an accepted idea of what mm. age you should be going through certain things. So mm. if you have kind of menstrual pain as a teenager then it would be probably written off as fairly normal but actually it could be mm. i don't know a symptom Sub-sing. of something much worse and there's a lot of conditions but i mean people get routinely ignored until it becomes such a problem that it's quite detrimental so and it takes going in and demanding to mm. a doctor like yeah. from my own experience mm. of really saying this needs to be addressed but mm. I have to be in a position of power to be able to go in yeah. and say either I can pay for this if I'm in a country where that's required mm-hmm. or I know enough or I have this knowledge or that I'm not just making this up. There needs to be some sort of authority mm-hmm. yeah. on the part of the patient, mm-hmm. which you have to say so about relies yeah. on you being able to put it forward in a particular kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps particularly if you have a male doctor you have to put it through in a very kind of rational kind of i don't know systematic way mm-hmm. where you kind of say on this day it's like this and like you have to have it almost documented yeah, yeah from achieve anything experience i never go into a doctor's office anymore without a list and i'll have a list of okay this is how it affects my work performance and i'll start with that first that well this is affecting my job and my ability to perform up to standard yeah. and then go from there yeah. the, i have yeah. to yeah. set that stage for them to even acknowledge it i have a similar thing but i mean i have several members of my family who work as, as healthcare professionals and i will often take one of them along with me and get them to do the talking because they are believed when i have not been believed um particularly when i was a younger a younger woman uh, with, a, with a male doctor so yeah you don't have that social clout that you perhaps need to to get what it is you need mm. and in this connie quite clearly mm. does not have the social clout 
to well, get the treatment that she deserves. Even the patient that was asking for an aspirin for her headache mm -hmm. is ignored and it's written off as, oh, this is just a mental patient self-diagnosing yeah. by yeah. the uh, nursing staff there. But I think there's also a resistance to patient self-diagnosing in that context particularly because it would upset the power relation. So if a person who is considered unable to make decisions for themselves is then suddenly believed in terms of what the pain is, then it calls into question this whole category of like mental mm -hmm. like, and crazy. It means that recognising that they are people able to make certain decisions rather than just kind of saying, well, they're crazy, so you know we'll make decisions for them. I think that's kind of interesting because on this ward, it's not made clear until the end exactly what the doctors believe Connie has but they treat all of the patients in the hospital mm. pretty much equally. I mean, some of them, some of them have ground privileges for mm. good behaviour and stuff, but most of the people are treated equally, even though quite clearly they're going to have different mental health issues. It's, it's not really poss possible that they're all going to have the same health issue, and I thought that was quite interesting. And that comes across quite well in the trial when um, Connie's talking to the different um, patients, and there's that guy, I can't remember his name... Um, the one, the, the one who dies. The one who dies is a guy who's gay and he's kind of, um, I mean, he's had many different treatments to kind of cure him of this. And his family are kind of obviously quite suburban, mm -hmm. but they want him to be cured of his homosexuality. And so he's then part of the same trial mm. along with other people which who have of mental illnesses like, yeah. you know, they might have schizophrenia and that's treated exactly the same yeah. which is kind of I was quite, quite scary actually interested because this book's written in 1979 mm. which is quite some years after homosexuality is legalised mm. probably mm. that's another critique of the society of that time I mean the mere fact that the law was passed it doesn't mean that things were solved overnight uh, yeah. overnight mm. and they yeah, have well, magic. certain homosexual acts are still illegal, I believe, in certain states even. Mm. Okay. That there's certain laws that are still in the books. So here in the state it might have been actually illegal. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure because it would have been New York or New Jersey, probably where he's from at the time. Yeah. Um, that there mm. may have been some acts or some parts of it that were still legal, if not obviously taboo. Mm. Well, that's a strange mm. thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, there were some states and that this was legal in 1979 homosexuality as a mm. as an idea is, is legal so is it why is it okay for them to implant electrodes into his head in one state but in the neighboring state he can do legally what he wants well there's an interesting modern parallel to that for um, the few states that have passed laws banning conversion therapy now in the mm. states mm -hmm. very few actually have come actually passed through those laws, whereas the majority of states still haven't. They don't have anything on the books. Mm -hmm. So rather than it's, say, a positive affirmation of saying homosexuality is legal, uh, the legal situation for many people is usually, well, it's not illegal, but chances mm -hmm. are you're going to get harassed by the police. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's similar parallels to the race question as well, right? Mm -hmm. You had the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, but this is the late 70s mm -hmm. and actually the relations haven't really changed no. it's still quite similar and would you even see if they have changed now mm. I mean there's mm. 
historical threads through this that we see in modern events easily. Yeah, mm. I mean, yeah, I was just in Atlanta and it was very interesting to see how the city was still very divided along mm. race lines. Mm. Um, it was interesting to use public transport in Atlanta because we were often stared at because it was just quite unusual for a white person to be on the metro in that particular area, so I don't know. And I think that stands out to sort of the larger structural lines that we've seen really throughout this book, mm. that there's these intersecting lines, and we said this in the beginning, that there's race, gender, ethnicity, um, gender presentation on top of that, and then the sort of overarching theme of mental health and perceptions of health mm -hmm. mm. I think for me though reading this book the thing that I particularly enjoyed about it was despite all of those issues it was Connie that I mm. saw it wasn't the Mexican woman it wasn't the Catholic mm. woman it wasn't the ill person it wasn't all of the things the many things that she can be defined as by society I saw Connie the person and I think that's a, a, a great triumph of the book is that although we see all of these things most of all we see Connie no definitely I mm. can agree I mean we the, the character is so beautifully written and the narrator does a great job mm. um, you could easily follow Connie and you could easily relate to, yeah. to Connie and be yeah. empathetic or be angry at the same time mm. when Connie was angry or sad. It was particularly mm. well written. Yeah. I mean, I think for me that's like the power of storytelling. I mean, everyone has a story, right? So when you when you see a person and you see them through a lens of kind of a particular mm. category, then that's all they are. But if you sit down and talk to them about what their life was, then you can kind of, I mean, for everyone, you come to understand how they got to where they got to and then they become a person because they have a past mm -hmm. and they have an identity and they have and you mm -hmm. have kind of this relationship with them through that so I think I don't know storytelling is Con super important yeah Connie's not a victim I mean I don't think you should whenever whoever reads this book they shouldn't read in Connie as a victim like she's a real survivor at the end of the day I think mm -hmm. I think it also depends on how you define victim, whether mm. you see that in a negative light as a passive, or as a positive passive. light. I think I would see it as a passive um, entity. Was there anything else that we were going to talk about? I think we missed out on talking about, about family. But we didn't talk about organs, did we? Oh, no, we did. Oh, yeah. we did. A little we? bit talk about organs. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I wanted to talk about was, um, and it relates to what we were just talking about too was how people in the future are really well constructed like in terms of their these characters are fleshed out they aren't just sort of half done characters they are people and they are differentiated and they're unique mm. um, and how they interact with each other is I think particularly unique too because the way in which these non-monogamous or polyamorous depending on how you want to define it relationships are depicted there's an emphasis on sort of love and care and mutual respect, but also consent. There's this undercurrent of consent to sort of everything that's done um, in this future. 
but that also goes back to how they're talking about um, power dynamics and uh, Connie's own relationships. Mm. It's interesting how in the dystopia, everything is not done with consent. Mm. Everyone is forced into roles that they are expected to play with no physically no means of escape you can't even look out the window you can't mm-hmm. you can't escape through a book yeah we haven't really talked about the dystopia much yeah, what did you think of it i don't i was i felt a little bit uncomfortable because it it appears at the end of towards the end of the book in which connie by chance ends up in a different future in which uh, ends up in a flat, in a yeah. in an apartment, and meets uh, a lady who is all dolled up and who is really, really pretty. And her sole purpose is to have sex, have yeah. sex, right? Satisfy yeah. um, mm-hmm. male characters. So clearly, Connie is very disturbed because she knows a different kind of future, mm-hmm. and she doesn't understand what she's doing there. And I think. Yeah, I think one of the, the I, I don't know why the dystopia is there, but probably is to show us that yeah, there's there are different realities. I think for me this was the clearest part of the book that the imagined future mm-hmm. had a real relation to Connie. And so for me this was almost exactly the character of Dolly, uh, Connie's niece. And this was kind of the thing that she was always saying about uh, Dolly throughout the book. She was kind of constantly saying, well, you have to get away Mm. because, you know, you're selling your body Mm. and, you know, you don't have a relationship with your daughter because all all you're doing is kind of selling your body to pay your debt Mm. to Mm. your husband who is a pimp, basically. Mm. Um, And I I think maybe also, sorry, just to say that it was interesting then to reflect on the relationship that the other characters and the different imagined futures had to maybe the people in the institution she was me- uh, meeting mm-hmm. um and I, i'm not sure how i thought about that but like i think just the directness of the relationship between this imagined future and dolly really made me reflect on the role of the other characters in in the book yeah I think if we go back to a conversation about choice I mean clearly the depiction of the this dystopia there's yeah if I I would dare to say it's a lack of choice like um, the yeah. the woman doesn't have any choice and she knows her place and she knows this is what she has to do mm-hmm. but and she wouldn't dare to you know go out on the different margins mm-hmm. so yeah. whereas in Luciente's future you have a choice for almost everything one of the things I was interested in with the narrative of this is it's not made clear whether this is a different future or whether this is part mm-hmm. of the same future but a different place in the earth because mm-hmm. we know that Luciente's world is at war mm-hmm. but we're not really told much about the details of that war are they the same world or are they two different futures that mm. we could go mm. down and is is Connie going to be the one responsible for which future we go down what is the ideas here and it's never made clear which I thought was quite clever of the author yeah and also based on the geographical placement of it like the description it, mm. I could have sworn it was New York I thought it was that New York the dystopian mm. future was in mm. and based on that 
I would assume that it's an alternate future, mm. but it could be parallel. And of course, just because it, I was so. just going to say, um, I think it's also interesting that it definitely, I mean, for me, it was quite ambiguous as to whether it was the same because Luciente always repeats, well, we're not really sure if they're robots. So they appear robots mm. to them, but is that just because they're so different and they've kind of, I mean, there's a lot of kind of making up and kind of, putting bits on to improve yourself and make yourself more beautiful but maybe mm. that's what it would appear to someone who lived yeah. in a very sort of particular way yeah, yeah. maybe it's parallel right maybe it's mm. one of the different Eventful. communities that Lucientis community could mm. interact or may interact one of the things I read on the internet when I was reading about people's perceptions of this was that mm. Connie's last act which is to to kill the doctors. Uh, um, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> was to, I'm gonna tell you how she did it though. Um, was her way of preventing the dystopian future from happening, mm. um, and was to make the utopian future. I had two issues with this. One would be that those two are the only possible futures, and I think both of them are fairly unlikely. Mm. But the second issue I had is that. In the utopian future, Luciente says something about how their world came about and it was through cooperation, mm. whereas Connie's last act is a act of violence. Mm. I mean, as, as nasty as these doctors have been to her, it to murder them is still an act of violence. So I disagreed with the people on the internet who were saying that this was her way of preventing that dystopian mm. future. I mean, I read it as probably as the people on the internet read it, because, mm. I mean, in her head, this was the war that she had to fight and she was I mean the parallels between mm. the two wars were kind yeah. of quite clearly drawn but I think for her then medicine and this kind of form of technology and merging mm -hmm. of technology in the body was the problem and this was the thing that had to be resisted and therefore the people carrying it out were responsible and whether that whether that's right or not I don't think is the question, but I think I, I, I can kind of understand the act in that context, if that makes sense. I can see where you're coming from, definitely. Yeah. I just thought that because the last act is so violent, mm. whereas Luciente spent almost the entire book saying that we should cooperate, I didn't really agree with that mm. outcome. I think I read it a little bit more like you did, Lydia, that um, it was really the only action she mm. had left other than surrender really mm. in this mm. war and it was really the only step she could take to me but I also didn't see the future as just two potential universes mm. because we also have this scene where there's the sort of fighter um, gunner scene where she's shooting and Luciente's there and we're not sure if it's a dream or if it's yeah. influenced by the meds or maybe it's just a slightly different alternate reality where the war yeah. is more immersed in the lives of those in yeah. the future. I suppose you could get into the moral dimension of this though. Is violence allowed in war? Should violence be allowed in war? So she kills these doctors mm. but that's the only action that she has okay is to kill these doctors or surrender does that make it okay for her to kill these doctors who have absolutely no form of defence at this point? Who are we to judge if it's okay yeah. though? Well, that's that, that's, a, that's another question, surely. I think yeah. maybe it's also, for me, not a question of whether that's morally right, but it's more interesting to look at precisely the first thing and what options does she have available to her. 
So the violence is much more... I mean, sorry, the violence is larger than that, right? Because Mm -hmm. the violence is inbuilt in the system in which she lives in. Um, And she's had so much violence done to her and enacted on her, then the only way she can respond to violence is through violence. Um, And she doesn't really have another way to communicate it. It's an interesting dilemma that she has, Mm -hmm. I think. I think it's interesting how they keep on talking about the fact she's Catholic very regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, in the Catholic faith, one doesn't fight violence with violence. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't dare to judge if she was right or wrong. But for me... I can see why she does it. At the end of the book, I mean, it was the only way how... Mm. Connie could resist mm-hmm. um, the oppression of the structure in yeah. which institutional structure that she is embedded. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of conversations about if it's violent or not. But yeah. well, let's just talk for a second of the violence inflicted upon her by those very doctors. Mm. She has had her head cut open, mm. drilled into cement. while she was awake electrodes inserted into her head that are supposed to control her emotions and affect her Mm. at her very core and how she expresses herself Mm. or can even think and she's been neglected as a patient she hasn't had a kind of broken ribs attended to like i think my my point is not so much she has been clearly violated Mm. against Mm. in a very evil sort of a way mm. and she is definitely the victim here in, in this sense mm. and my point is is it is it really right and I'm not saying it isn't or it mm. is is it really right to fight violence with violence mm. just the fact that Connie herself has been abused make it okay for Connie to become the abuser that's at, my point at mm. the same time I'm not sure I'd classify what she does as abuse I'd be more inclined to classify it or think of it as self-defense mm. as in she's tried other solutions mm. she's mm. tried to get out of there she's tried to play the role she should after she had the electrodes taken out. Spoiler mm. alert again. Um, and she's tried to fit into their mold mm. and be the good patient and get out of there, but none of these other tactics or techniques are working. She's going to go under the knife again. And mm. it's mm. this inevitability that she's faced with. I mean, it, I suppose it does have some uncomfortable parallels with kind of contemporary political violence mm. and mm. how we understand that. And I think it is interesting that the book manages to both have Connie as a character, as a person, as a human being, while her also commit or committing acts of violence. Mm-hmm. And we, um, in the book, we understand where those acts of violence come from. Yeah. So for me, I don't know. I'm not very comfortable with saying whether she was right or wrong, mm. but I think it's actually very important to suggest that someone can be a person and also commit acts of violence. That's what I liked about the fact that the author doesn't make it clear whether she agrees with what Connie does. Mm. Mm. There is no, yes, she was right, or no, she was wrong kind of thing. It's very much how I read it, like Mm. you, that she is a person first, and how she reacts to the situation is is herself. Were there any other topics that anyone brought up that we missed or glanced over? Because mm. I know you brought up some points about the family, but I think we covered Dolly. The brother. We didn't talk about Lewis. <laughs> I didn't like Lewis. <laughs> I don't know what he was saying. Yeah. yeah I, I still dislike him. Okay, yeah. so I want to talk about Lewis. Oh, Lewis. <laughs> so Lewis is uh, Connie's brother. Um, who signs um, the papers for Connie to be... Um, um, 
held under treatment in the hospital um, and he's uh, Dolly's father. Um, now Louis is playing very much by the rules. He is well integrated in the society um, but somehow I think there is still something vicious about him in the book and yeah I mean I think I very much disliked how the whole idea of and he'll please um, interject how um, he was very he was playing by the rules uh, in the society but at the end of the day Connie wasn't and Connie was the one who suffered so much because she didn't integrate it in the society I, think may, I might be wrong maybe it was easier for Lewis to integrate into the society mm. I mean I mean, maybe he, he didn't fit exactly, but mm. the fact that he was able to perform this sort of macho, masculine character meant that he was better able to. Um, mm. And even at the beginning of the book, where they're talking about kind of the language and they can't say sit, but, and the teacher says you have to say sit rather than... Like, Seat, yeah. yeah. Um, and Lewis kind of picks up on this quite quickly mm. and then almost tries to discipline the others mm. into mm. doing this yeah. as well um, I, but it's not it doesn't mm. seem to be possible for Connie I find it difficult to be too critical of Lewis or Louis whoever whichever way you want to say mm. um, he's an evil character he's not a nice guy or say evil but he's, he's, he's not a nice guy but if you put him in the context in which he has been brought up his actions become quite clear mm. so he's brought up as a, as a Mexican in a white dominated world where if he wants to make anything of himself he has to play by the rules now he can stay in poverty and he can stay where he is or he can improve his lot in life and the only way by the society in which he's living that he can really improve his lot in life is to play by the rules of the society and I think I'm not saying I necessarily agree with what he's done, but I can see why he does it. Though it's also very much easier for him to play that part, to play that role. I mean, he gets to become this upstart business owner, and I'm not saying that doesn't take a ton of hard work, yeah. but Connie's version of that is cleaning white women's houses. The, mm. There is definitely another intersecting gender dynamic Absolutely. here. That he mm. has an easier ability mm -hmm. to assimilate because he is male. Lewis has taken what he's got, the fact that he's male um, and presumably fairly light-skinned and run with it. And I don't think that one can criticise him for doing this when you take into his background. Of course, Connie doesn't have this and I think that's an interesting paradox between the two. I mean, my problem with Lewis is that it seems like He's not sympathetic towards mm -hmm. Connie and yeah. he's not he doesn't understand what Connie's going through yeah. and I could never read in the book throughout those those pages when Louis presented and Louis Louis interacts with Connie. He couldn't show any brotherly mm -hmm. love or yeah. any but sympathy think... or trying to understand her so I think that's why I'm really upset with him <laughs> I think actually this is where the book's quite clever though because I think for him to be this character the upstart kind of macho man he has to define it against something right yeah. so mm -hmm. there's constant references in the book to him kind of commenting on what Dolly or 
Connie or his wife are eating or kind of, you know, well, they have to be look pretty in a particular way or they can't put on weight. Um, mm. And kind of asserting this masculinity constantly. So for him to be successful, he has to tread on a lot of people's yeah. toes and define his mm. sisters or yeah. his relatives against him. Mm. It, it's interesting too with Dolly's weight loss. Connie doesn't see that as a positive thing, whereas Lewis, mm. he wants more weight loss from Dolly. He's still saying that she eats too much yeah. and making fun of her and it stands in this contrast that he has to create himself by creating sort of these negative assertions about mm. others. Because maybe he's been oppressed as a teenager, as a child, mm. and now that he's made it in life, at least to an extent that we can see, he's now become the oppressor, mm. which is a common it, It's thing. a theme, yeah. yeah. He gains power, so he's mm. going to choose to use it in a way that just reinforces his power rather than trying yeah. to give power to others. Yeah. But I think it almost constantly seems like that, right? Like, I mean, it's it's not that he kind of becomes successful and then he does this. It is mm. how he's successful. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really important point, mm-hmm. um, how that power kind of works in the book. It's interesting you were saying about how he learns very quickly to say sit rather than seat mm. and that the power of accents is very important. So he's mm. clearly picked up very young that mm. white mm. middle-class male men have their power by oppressing everybody who's not white middle class and male um and this is how he very quickly learns that if he wants to if he wants to make it in life if he wants to have the nice house and the nice car and the business he has to start doing the same i think he's very much a product of his society and it Mm. makes Mm. it makes me think actually actually how much of louis that we see is actually louis and how much of it is just years and years and years of having to fight against the establishment to become who to become a successful man well, he fights against the establishment to become part of the establishment. Yeah, absolutely. But he also understands that appearances do matter, right? Yeah. He understands that he has to look like other people and he yeah. has to behave like the others yeah. and has to be like the others. Otherwise, he would never succeed. I mean, otherwise, he would not have a successful uh, business yeah. to feed all his children and yeah. ex-wives. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, right? Because there's also a sense to which he trades up. Mm. When, um, and that's how yeah. it's very much described in the book. So he kind of starts with... I can't even remember his the starter wife. Yeah, he's yeah. a starter wife, and yeah. He kind of divorces them in favour of a slightly mm-hmm. better model, yeah. which yeah. is, again, very much in line with the way that women seem to be kind of traded mm-hmm. and each time them. it seems lighter skinned and younger yeah. as well <laughs> because the last one she's anglo isn't she she's described as anglo yeah <laughs> interestingly though the last one had a child by a previous marriage i thought that was quite interesting because of course in in uh, you know the the sort of prize bride so to speak would would be a virgin right it would be a, an unmarried mm. woman and I wonder how long this wife was going to last before he finds, you know... Wife number four. Wife number four who is 21 and has no children. And, and you know, daddy has a, an, a, an even bigger gardening business that he can take over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't see true love. No. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you very much for listening to us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs>